Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I have learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. Today, I have Melissa Lindsay on this podcast. I'm very excited to have her. She is the founder and CEO of the Donor Conceived Community, and she was donor conceived herself. And so she knows quite a lot on a personal level, but also by all the people that she helps how much of a struggle it can be, but also some of the answers to understanding the best ways to talk to donor-conceived children and what donor-conceived people really need. So thank you so much for joining us today, Melissa. Really happy to have you. Maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your evolution into this world and how you found out you were donor-conceived and then how you decided to uh, develop this group. Well, I grew up in Northern California with a mom, a dad, and two sisters, a twin sister and a younger sister. I did not know that there was anything unique about our conception story or my parents' family building. Um, nothing was really ever mentioned. Um, so I did not think there was anything to discover there. When I was 15, my dad passed away. So one wow. thing that's significant in my story is that I really looked for and held on to the connections that I had with him. And it put more of a focus on things like me containing his DNA or him being part of me. So I think in an effort to maintain those connections, I really cherish things like having a dimple on the same side of my cheek that I thought I got from him or my chin looked like his, or people said that I had his smile. And that was really precious to me. I also had a lot of curiosity because my dad was adopted by his father and his biological father was also adopted. So wow. I had a lot of curiosity about that side of his family and considered doing a DNA test at some point. I thought I really want to find out more about the people, the stories and the links that I have because I thought I carry the DNA of those people and they also were links to more about my dad and who he was. I put that off for various reasons, probably cost or just because I didn't think there'd be anything really shocking in that discovery. Um, and I was 39 years old when I got a text from my sister. It was a chance conversation with a good friend of my dad's who was talking about his own 23andMe results, his own surprise, and then shared with my sister that she should take a DNA test and find her biological father. And she was very confused by that. So she called me and or texted me and said, hey, is there something to know about this? And we all just thought it was a miscommunication. Mm -hmm. My sister is six years younger than me. So I kind of went through some scenarios like 
maybe my parents thought they were done having children, had a vasectomy. And then, then I thought maybe they needed to use a donor for my younger sister. I also thought about possibly affairs or different things. So there was this time when I thought it was more about my sister than it was me. Wow. Very interesting because I got to try on for size what someone would think about donor conception if they were not donor conceived. So I found myself saying things like, it doesn't matter. Dad still loved you. It doesn't change anything. Your dad is still your dad. And he wouldn't have cared if you were genetically his or not. And so I got to experience that attempt to comfort or put it into perspective. Mm -hmm. And then I took a 23andMe test. It confirmed that my younger sister and I were half siblings. So we had different biological fathers, but I still thought my dad was my genetic father also. Hmm. I just really felt sure that I had his dimple and his chin and his eyes and his hairline. And it just seemed impossible to me. So then I had a cousin take a test on my dad's side and it came back that we were not related. And so I also learned more of the story in the meantime that my parents had openly told these friends that they had used a donor before we were conceived and they had meant to tell us. And so this person thought that we already knew. And so when he said he did not think he was revealing some secret because my parents' plan had been to tell us, which I think is an important thing for parents to hear that the intent was to tell but it just got put off. And then my dad died. And I'm guessing that it was never really a convenient time to share that news, especially if people saw that it might cause me to feel some kind of grief about not having that genetic connection. So it just wasn't mentioned. And all the things that I thought I would say to my younger sister to comfort her were not quite the comfort to me that I thought they were once I was the one experiencing it. So my dad was still my dad, and that would not change any of our closeness or how much I loved him. But I also felt very confused looking in the mirror, all of a sudden thinking, who do I look like? It's never been my mom. It's always been my dad. But now it's somebody else, and they're a stranger, and I don't even know who they are. And I was also very scared to try to find out who it was, because I love my dad, and I didn't want to, um, find out that I was related to this person that I maybe didn't respect, or, I mean, there's all kinds of scary things that go through your mind about who this person could be. So it was very, it was a challenging time for me because I wanted to not think about it, but I couldn't help but think about it. And I had all these reminders, even when I would try to push it to the back of my mind, things would pop up thinking, have I already been around this person? Who are my siblings? How many do I have? Do I have hundreds of siblings? It was all very um, confusing. <laughs> so, Wow. That's an incredible story. The first thing that comes to my mind, Melissa, is as you talk about this, I think about something that um, I talk to parents about a lot, which is that even though they understand that maybe, the, let's say, the donor is not involved in their life, it's still very helpful for the children to understand good things about the donor because that child can also feel that that goodness is inside of them, right? If if you're talking, so I'm wondering as you're saying this, if you had any of those feelings, like the thought that some stranger and maybe somebody that you may not, as you said, respect or like or whatever, or feel interested Mm -hmm. in, 
that's inside of you. Did you have any of those feelings? Yes. Um, I think it, it has two sides to it. One was on the fear side. When I didn't know who the person was, I, it was hard for me not to come up with lots of scenarios, especially given some of the news <laughs> things that you read about who donors end up being. And I also didn't know their motivation for donating. So on one hand, it could be very altruistic. Somebody really wanted to help. On the other hand, I was receiving the marketing and advertising from donors and clinics just by doing Google searches about donor conception. I was getting ads saying, you know, take a trip, donate your eggs, or are you looking for a donor? And so I was receiving the marketing that was aimed for donors. And I thought, ooh, was that the reason he donated? Mm -hmm. I don't, it just felt weird to see that as the product of the industry. I thought the marketing tactics were like not aiming at the best of humanity for why somebody would even donate in the first place. And plus, it's just the butt of a lot of jokes um, about donating sperm. And we, it, it was just challenging to think like, was this a college student or that just thought I want beer money or yeah. um, what, what was, what was the reason? And I, I think it pushed on something that we think about in lots of other situations. You know, I have three boys. I was already the parent of three children. And as a parent, I'm always thinking about nature and nurture. What's my influence as a parent And then who are they just born to be? And I'm just along to support them and discover who they are. And so I knew that for my own children, that they were three very different people. Mm -hmm. And that even though I might have the same parenting tactics or ideas or, you know, goals, that it was still going to turn out very different depending on who these individuals are. And that it was my job as a parent to learn about them just as much as it was to shape them. And so all of a sudden, knowing that about my own children, thinking about it in reverse was very strange. Like, who is this person and what qualities do I have just because I have 50% of who I am comes from their DNA. So I was very curious. I had always loved medicine and wanted to be a doctor. Hmm. Um, My dad was in sales and nowhere near healthcare. (laughs) Um, He was like a history guy and I was a math and science person. I was very outgoing like him. And so I would find that connection. But all of a sudden I was thinking, you know, who is this person? And it's funny because my husband at the time said, I think he's a doctor. That was his first guess at who this person was just because he had observed how my brain worked, even though I didn't go into healthcare. Mm -hmm. And um, he was right. My biological father is a doctor and specifically a family doctor. And that is exactly what I wanted to be from the time I was in sixth grade until my freshman year of college, I wanted to be a family doctor. So that was just interesting to experience that. Um, As I made the discovery, there are lots of similarities that just showed up because of the DNA, not because I was ever around him and obviously didn't even know who he was. Which I think also kind of, you know, highlights how important it is for parents to, to be able to say good things about their donor because you didn't have someone saying to you, you know, your donor's a lovely guy and he's so smart like you and he's this and he's that. So those sort of things could kind of fill you up and not leave you with this kind of hole of 
who is this person? And I don't want anything that I don't like in that hole, um, right? Because it feels it's connected to you. And it's very interesting now to look back and remember how many times this same family friend that did know that we were donor conceived and knew about the donor would say to me, you are going to be a doctor. I know you have it in you. This is definitely what you're going to do. And my dad saying to me, I know you're going to be a doctor. It makes, oh yeah, they totally encouraged it. But then my dad passed away and, you know, I was going through a lot of grief and trauma. Um, and I'll add here that my dad died by suicide. Oh, And so I was very concerned about the mental health pieces that what if I carried these things? And I was kind of concerned about, I mean, I loved my dad, but I was worried all the time about what if the things that led to his suicide, the challenges that led to his suicide, what if they're genetic? And so I was concerned about mm. that. And my mom would sometimes say things like, you don't have to worry about that, but she wouldn't explain why. So I think that's in an effort to protect. I think that, you know, parents sometimes do some damage to not give their kids enough information to know what things they should be worried about and what things they shouldn't be worried about. And so when I got to my freshman year of college, it was definitely interesting to sit down with someone who didn't know the story a career counselor and say, you know, here's what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this many years of med school. And they were concerned about my mental health, given my family history saying that's a lot, you know, and that's a really stressful path. And you, you don't have your parents to support you. You're doing this on your own. It might just be something that pushes too far. And if you have this in your family background. So it's very interesting now to think about how that conversation would have been different if we had all the puzzle pieces. And if I had been given the pieces to the puzzle to say, well, you have the real grief of losing your father and how he died, but it you don't have the genetic piece of, of what could have been a factor here. And surely becoming a doctor is not genetic, but you're you do have, you know, your biological father is in this. So it makes sense if you're interested in this. And I think it would have been helpful information. I mean, we can't, we can't rewind, but when parents have information and consider that that information would be helpful for their children, I think it's very important to equip people with as many puzzle pieces as you can so that they can decide how to put them together. And that was really helpful for me to learn more uh, about all of those different things and then figure out how to put them together for myself at this stage of life. So Melissa, you know, I think this also kind of points to this idea, which I think kind of universally so important for people to know all those pieces and for children to grow up feeling that there's goodness inside of them, of course, right? We can kind of say universally, but with regard to kind of particular interest or particular reaction to being donor conceived or interested in donor conceived siblings or interest in your, in your biological father. Lots of people you see, you know, in your own family or even in the donor conceived community, you probably see a lot of different sorts of experiences and reactions. I think it's important to acknowledge that those discoveries don't happen in a vacuum, that those relationships that people have already have with their family they can 
become really great support or, or they can have challenges that just become harder. And so uh, I, I think a lot of the reactions we see in donor conception are built upon other things that were already working really well in family mm-hmm. dynamics or really challenges. Not everybody responds the same to finding out that their donor conceived and not everybody responds the same to always knowing that their donor conceived. I was under the impression at first when I started Donor Conceived Community that I would be supporting people who were having these shocking discoveries like I was of finding out they were donor conceived. And because I couldn't find resources, I thought I want to make those resources for people. What I didn't anticipate was that there would be people who would need support who had always known that they were donor conceived Mm. because I thought the shock of it was so disorienting and that's where people needed support. But then I learned that things like managing sibling relationships and uh, managing a relationship with either possibly a donor or the donor's family mixed in with dynamics of the family that they have grown up with, Mm -hmm. those things need support too. And so I was, you know, I learned that this was broader than what I had originally thought. And so what sorts of things do you see most in your day-to-day work in the donor conceived community? Some of the common themes are, especially in the new discovery piece, the mix of having to be in the role of not only educating themselves, but educating their family members about donor conception. There's a, a big season of information gathering, trying to get their bearings and educating parents who who really saw donor conception as the finish line, just having the baby was the finish line and really nothing had been addressed since then. So when a donor conceived person brings up this topic, it can be challenging in so many ways because they're trying to process the information, but they're also trying to support their parents or their siblings in processing the information. So they're are practical pieces like just learning about the industry, learning the terminology, learning the procedures and the processes of fertility treatment. So that's one aspect of it. And then there's the practical, what do I do next? Do I test or not test? Do I make contact or not make contact? People are looking for the very practical support in that. And then what kind of information is available to me? What's the process for asking questions and getting answers. And so there's a very practical piece of who do I call? What do I say? What should I ask my parents and how? And then the other piece that happens in our peer support groups is because it's so unique, it can feel very isolating. If I explain to someone, it feels like I'm talking about some, you know, lifetime movie or something really sensational. And it's hard for people Mm -hmm. to understand. So it's really helpful for people to connect in the peer support groups because then they know someone else who's going through it too. And there's a lot of just sharing stories. And a lot of that looks like processing grief. Different people feel the loss of different things when they have a late discovery. And sometimes that grief is just over trust because they are surprised that a parent didn't give them this information Mm -hmm. all along. And so it looks like processing how do I repair this relationship? What does it look like to rebuild trust? How do I get a commitment of honesty going forward? How do I explain my need for that? So those are things that come up in the 
in the new discovery groups, in the groups for people who have always known it's a very practical piece of how do I manage these sibling relationships? How do I keep track of siblings? How do we coordinate even developing relationships and respecting the desires of siblings because some don't want relationships and some do? How do I get medical information? How do we share medical information? How do we keep track of the next generation? Because it's one thing to have the number of siblings that you have, but once our donor conceived people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who are now trying to manage how many cousins are there and how do we alert the cousins to each other because now there's a large number of unknown people in this metropolitan area who are all first cousins. How do we balance that with privacy and with allowing people to make their own choices about it? And for both late discovery and people who've always known, there's an element of being always waiting to be contacted by someone who doesn't know. It's stressful to decide how to respond to a 23andMe request or an ancestry request or a contact or an email because people are aware that they may be sharing something that's very challenging with someone who innocently is just asking, Mm -hmm. how are we related? Even the people who've always known that they're donor conceived will be contacted by somebody who has no idea that they're donor conceived and it puts them in the role of telling the story or of letting that person go on without knowing the full story and hoping they find out some other way. Those are tough decisions to make. Yeah, we had somebody here um, on the podcast who had that experience and someone reached out to her and said, hey, we're related. And she said, how are we related? So I, I suspect this is happening more and more. And of course, people are telling their children more and more, but there's still some people who have not told their children. So that's, that can be a really difficult situation, knowing that that may be the case because we still live in a world where not everyone tells. And, and I think it's easy to make assumptions about why people don't tell, but the, the reasons are varied. Yes. And trying to make room for the variety of reasons is, is important but challenging because there's a lot of hurt involved. And so when people feel afraid or hurt, I think they can easily make assumptions about why a person didn't tell. I don't know that that's always helpful, Mm -hmm. um, but we do try in our discussions with donor conceived people and in our discussions with parents and donors who haven't disclosed to their family that they donated to just acknowledge that there hasn't been support. So people are really trying to figure it out on their own. It's been treated in so many ways that having the baby is the goal. And everyone just kind of tries to move on from there and then pretend that everything is, I don't want to say normal because I think donor conception is normal, but I think a lot of people try to present, pretend that donor conception didn't happen once they, they don't, they've had such a hard time with fertility that they really just want to leave that whole world behind and just get on to the next stage of parenting. And so it hasn't been common to get support for the different stages of telling at the different points, which I appreciate what your organization does because it looks at how to talk about it at these different ages and stages and parents just didn't have those resources. And I I think especially where we have seen in other areas of health, where we realize we probably didn't give as much information or there's been new developments and we realize people need to be equipped with more information. There hasn't really been a push yet in donor conception to say, we need to make an effort to to educate the donors of 20 years ago, 30 years ago, five years ago, 
and to recognize that they will need continued support, um, whether that's the parents or the donors or the donor conceived people. So that's part of the effort of what we're trying to do, but it's definitely an issue that needs to be supported from many angles, not just, you know, one nonprofit or two nonprofits from the donor conceived space. You know, it's so interesting because as you're speaking, Melissa, I'm thinking about this idea that it's almost kind of counterintuitive, as you said, people just are kind of racing to get pregnant and naturally feel, you know, a lot of pain around not being able to use their genetics to conceive. And if that's the case, or even, you know, a gay couple might feel like it's very hard to have this person who's a stranger to them as part of the most intimate part of their family. And yet, in a way, it's almost as if the more we invest in it in the beginning, the more we tell and share and say lovely things about the donor and help our children feel comfortable with the concept and possibly connecting later with their donor or donor-conceived children, in a way, it's almost like it immunizes you against some of these troubles down the line, it sounds like. Yeah, I think... Um getting comfortable and working through that grief leaves more room for the natural curiosity that's going to happen. So it's not an immunization for not caring. I think that's important for parents to understand. It's not that we talk about it with our kids so that they don't care about being donor conceived. It's talking about it so we can get comfortable for if and when they care about being donor conceived and how that will be expressed. Because for some people, it's not going to be a common point of conversation. And I think that's, that's just a reality to acknowledge too, that you could have three children who are donor conceived and one is very intrigued and interested. And the other one never really wants to talk about it. And another one might talk about it, but not with the parents. And so they might have this relationship with the siblings that the parents don't even know about. And so it's not talking about it so that kids won't care. It's talking about it so that if kids need support, and the ways that they care, if it's a place for a parent support, they're ready to do that because they work through whatever feelings they have about it to really leave room for it to be centered on that donor conceived person. And I think some parents out of hope talk very positively about the donor, almost using language like, you know, they're, they're an angel or they're this they came in and saved the day. Like we couldn't do this. We couldn't have you without them. And they're so amazing. And they gave such a great gift. And that can be really, I think, beautiful in the short term. (laughs) And it's, and it fits well with the younger stories for kids of, you know, that someone coming to save the day and kids can have a lot of fun with the creativity of who this person might be. But the reality is generally at some point, if the donor conceived person meets that person, or comes in contact with other siblings, I think parents need to be careful not to use this hopeful language about who the donor is and talk about them as being so generous, so kind, so giving, so wonderful when they're a human and who knows who that person is going to turn out to be. Also, we don't always know that the information that a clinic provided was checked for accuracy or just that it was accurate at all. There are people who were their siblings who are related and they have entirely different files of who the donor profile wow. is. So one, even though they're related, the parents chose that donor on different assumptions based on what the profile said. And it turns out one of them was correct and the other one wasn't. And if a person hears stories 
that are a mix of the fact that is provided with embellishment from what a parent hopes is true, that can be confusing at the stage that a person has to see, can I trust my parents to give me accurate information? So when I'm talking to parents, um, I recommend that they separate the facts they've been given for what they know from what they hope to be true. And that it's okay to join your kids in curiosity and say, I wonder if, or I hope, but that should be clear to separate the I hope and I wonder if from the facts that they truly have. If they have the information that the donor was an engineering major, (laughs) that's the information that they should share. Who knows if that person ended up in the career that they had as their major, who knows what they're doing Uh 10 years later. And so um, I think it's important for parents to be thinking about the trust that they want to build with their child, that they're a source of accurate information more than maybe when a parent is tempted to embellish what they hope is true and then tell it to their child as fact, because at some point that may not be true. And that's going to be more disappointing for a donor conceived person who's built this narrative that they've been told for 15, 18 years. And then if they decide to make that contact and none of it's true, it can feel very jarring. So I think that's important for parents to separate that out. That's interesting. Well, I think it's also hard for people to get to the point in their life where they realize their parents are human beings too. I mean, that's so, so hard, right? For teens or young adults to kind of, and it's probably going to be around the same time that they realize their donor is a real person too, right? These are all their their ideas of what they would like or how they feel that, you know, my father knows everything because he's so smart. And now I see that he's not the only person who's smart, right? So it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough transition for people to make. And I think that when, when you're, we're talking about, you know, development, it's so hard for children to kind of integrate, you know, all of this information. And it's, and I think that's why, you know, kind of points to the idea of starting young and not, I agree with you, not necessarily feeling like it's not important, but at least there, there's more comfort with the idea of it because, you know, that's really, I think the best we could hope for when we're talking to our kids is they get comfortable, whether they like it or not, whether they want to meet their donor or not. You know, I, I sometimes ask my, my kids who all three of them feel have different feelings, different experiences about being adopted. And one of my children, I said, how do you feel when people say, you know, you look just like your mom? She's like, I'm just used to it. Like, does a fish know he's in water? Like, you know, I've always known that I was adopted. I've always known that I don't really look like you. I've always felt that people are going to say that. And this is just like, that's just part of my life. Like, like it never even phased her. So it's very interesting how um, different people have such different reactions to these things. I think the common theme for donor conceived people that they've shared in their groups is that they, they have this experience of looking back and noticing these moments that stood out to them. And I've been very interested to see the theme of Hmm. those moments. And it's quite often donor conceived people look back and notice a time that their parents expression changed of like discomfort or pain or awkwardness, like, I'm going into the no-fly zone here, and I'm not supposed to be asking this question, even though they don't know why. And so to me, that highlights the importance of parents talking early is so that they can get comfortable with these things so that 
kids don't have to notice this no-fly zone. They're not allowed to talk about this. Because even when we didn't have all the puzzle pieces, some part of our brain was picking up on this is not a topic mm-hmm. I should be asking about. And that happened for me where I, I was asking about health history because my dad's mother had major cardiac issues early on and my dad's brother had colon wow. cancer. So I was asking my mom about that. And she just would cut the conversation short and say, you don't need to worry about it. And it stood out Hmm. to me. Like, why does she always tell me not to worry about it when in other places she would be concerned about health history? And so after my discovery, I would think back like, oh, that's why they had that expression. So to me, that, that helps me give advice to parents of, yes, that's why you read the book to your three month old not because they're going to retain the information, but because you question, because you've had two years of practice telling this story. And so even though your voice might squeeze up at certain parts of it, you're through that stage by the time your child can notice what's happening. Mm -hmm. You've worked out all the kinks. You've had your tears. You've stumbled over your words. You've changed your story. You've gotten to a place where you finally feel comfortable with whatever you're going to say. And it speaks to you and you can say it with a full heart. And that's so important. Yeah. And extended family members too, that, you know, maybe one partner is really ready to go and the other partner is really still working through grief. Yeah. That's time to work that out too. Or maybe an in-law is more uncomfortable and an aunt or uncle just doesn't understand using that time to work that out is so important so that later on, it's not the donor conceived person noticing the stress in that dynamic. And so I think parents might be tempted Mm -hmm. to well, I just am not going to talk about it with them and we'll just bring it up. But then managing who knows and who doesn't know and managing the tension in certain things. So many donor conceived people get really stressed out during the holidays because they have to observe this person knows that person doesn't know. The adoption has the advantage of being pretty transparent. Everybody you that an Mm -hmm. adoption took place, but donor conception can have, well, this side of the family knows this side of the family doesn't Right. that dynamic and the awkwardness. And it ends up putting a burden on the donor conceived person to, can I be honest about myself or do I let someone else be dishonest and not say anything? And it puts their Mm -hmm. relationships under strain and stress. And even, you know, there are donor conceived people who know they're donor conceived and they're being asked by their parents, well, don't tell your brother, or don't tell your sister, don't tell one of your parents. You know, it's just very, it's a big burden for donor conceived people to have to manage the element of knowing in a family. I think it's also difficult when you are genetically related, you've donor conceived and you're genetically related to one parent, a same sex male or same sex female couple. And one person's genetically related and some people know, yes, this person used their eggs or this person used their sperm. And so I know who their real parent is, which feels so hurtful to the couple, right? Because it just leaves the other person out of the picture. But then also for the child, if they have that information and some people can know and some people can't because, you know, this grandma really wants you to have your Italian background and that's really important to her and you really don't have it. And, you know, whatever that might mean, it does put quite a burden on the family and on the children. And I'd say this is definitely not the scenario that people want to plan for, but it's just the reality that not all partnerships 
and marriages are forever. <laughs> and so that element really comes up when donor conceived people are told that it doesn't matter, genetic connections don't matter. But then when there is a divorce or a breakup, the parents can respond differently sometimes based on they said it didn't matter, but now in their choice for how to treat that other parent, now they're saying it does matter. And somebody may not take the initiative yeah. to maintain the relationship as much because they're not the genetic parent or somebody puts a barrier between the relationship with a parent because there isn't a genetic relationship. And that's been really, that's really hurtful in every scenario for people who haven't worked through that. Um, it can be a dynamic in their relationship and the donor conceived person might not even know that that dynamic exists and exists, an yeah. explanation for, you know, one of, one of our participants um, had a two mom family um, there was a divorce and then there were some consecutive partnerships afterwards, including other donor conceived children. And the dynamic of who had access to what child was a real challenge. And some of that was based on who was the genetic parent and who wasn't. And that really pushes on when people say, you know, love makes a family. I think it's important to recognize it's not just who the parents love, it's who the donor conceived person loves. And so when that love isn't happening between the two parents anymore, that person is still the donor conceived person's family. Um, even if the parents aren't in that romantic relationship anymore, it's really hard on the donor conceived person if donor conception ends up getting in the way of how involved both parents stay after there's a divorce or a breakup. So that's terrible. That's one of the things that comes up in our groups too. That's awful. Yeah. It's just the overlap, divorce and families shifting dynamics. That's mm -hmm. hard no matter what. So donor conception just adds a different element to it, but it's not purely just because of donor conception. That's the challenge of, you know, I mean, as a therapist, you know that better. Yeah, it's just so sad. It's terrible. Well, it's so nice, Melissa, that you have this community for people to come to and to work things out. And, you know, I also just want to say that this is not, as I'm sure you, you feel it's not, you know, a, a one-time experience, even as an adult, right? I mean, we had um, a man who's a sperm donor on the podcast and he was talking about how some of the donor conceived children were interested in him and others were trying to work out whether or not they want to have a relationship and some did and then they changed their mind and some hesitated but then later they warmed up to so you know this can be an evolving experience for people and their parents really play a key role in supporting them through this and parents should feel good and feel empowered to know that they can be their child's ally that they can really support their child through these decisions as they support them through all decisions in life right right, right. and and it's it's an element a place to support um in the middle of so many other parenting priorities too i mean it's in the mix of supporting your child as they figure out what career they want or how they're doing in school or how they're managing friendships and social dynamics. We have so many concerns for our kids' mental health and well-being. So it's just, it's one of, I think it's one of the pieces on the dashboard of 
how am I supporting my child in their unique conception story? And it will change over time. I think parents knowing that their five-year-old is fine or their 15-year-old is fine or their 25-year-old is fine, it's a place of continued support because it may change for that person over time. I think one of the, the places that it's been most helpful with parents is to just equip parents to know this is a continued conversation. It's not a one-time telling and then we're done. Mm-hmm. So you're really along for the ride for all of their development as being a parent for life. Well, that's a great place for us to end for today. So it's uh, beautifully said, Melissa, and thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate, as always, talking to you about these subjects and uh, you know, a wealth of knowledge. And I think everyone out there would really benefit by reaching out to you with whatever questions they have. How can people reach you? Uh, well, we have a website. It's www.donorconceivedcommunity.org. So uh, our events and groups and resources are listed there. Um, anyone is always welcome to email me also. Um, my email address is pretty easy. It's melissa at dccsupport.org. And we are working on resources, adding resources all the time. So we'll have some more peer support groups for parents and we have one for donors. And we also have a variety of peer support groups for donor conceived people. So we're really trying to um, serve all the members of the constellation of donor conception. Terrific. It's wonderful. Well, thanks so much. And I really, really appreciate you um, and all you're doing. And for all of you uh, out there, please continue to support us by subscribing. And also that way you will not miss any of our episodes. We have a lot of great information to share and we'd love to have you back. So thanks for joining us.